you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew, and as you turn there, Matthew chapter 6, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 19, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I'll pray. God, I again just thank you so much for your your care over us, for the clarity of your word. And we ask, God, that you would just um, so speak to us that we each would yield to you and give our amen, God, to what you're saying and trust you, God, to, to work these things in us. We want to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. And we ask, God, that you would accomplish this in each of our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, not only do we pray for these children and their parents that were just up here, but we obviously should all be praying much about um, the Supreme Court decision that they'll be handing down probably this summer. And wouldn't it be wonderful after 49 years since Roe versus Wade passed in 1973 that we would see that finally overturned? This section of scripture here, beginning in verse 19, um, really goes through to verse 34, and it is just a very clear um, instruction and admonition from the Lord Jesus to um, not worry and to have the right priorities about life here on earth. In this first paragraph here, 19 through 24, he talks about treasure, he talks about vision, and he talks about masters and that we all um, have to, to um, make some choices when it comes to just living in this life and what is most important. So he begins by talking about not laying up treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. And that's um, a difficult statement, because I would imagine that we all have savings accounts, and we all are, are you know, trying to save for our retirements and that kind of thing, um, set aside money for car repairs and, and just life. We, we, um, you, you, it is prudent, it is wise to have some savings. And so is Jesus saying, have no savings. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Very emphatic statement. Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth. I believe that what Jesus is getting after is that um, our treasure ought to be in, in heaven, that our first priority ought to be eternal and not the temporal. We know from Scripture that we are told in Proverbs to consider the ant that has um, um, no chief and no ruler, and yet it prepares its food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And so even ants make provision for the future. Um, we're told in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we, we know that Scripture does say we have responsibilities in this life, and we are to meet those responsibilities. And sometimes that means that we have to lay up for the meeting of those. But the really question is, where is our heart? And are, is our heart just solely occupied with our treasure? Or are we in the habit and the um, um, mindset of laying up for the future? And then there's a question, well, even how do you do that? 
how do you lay up treasure for heaven? There's a lot of question, a lot of debate about that. A lot of times you hear people just say, well, do it for the Lord. And um, if you've been here for any time at all, you know that my opinion on that is that you can do things for the Lord and it not result in treasure in heaven. Because whatever is not of faith, from faith, is sin. And you can even do things for the Lord, not from a disposition of dependence upon Him and faith upon Him, and so it's not going to result in treasure in heaven. If you just don't lose Matthew 6, but go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's probably the primary passage to go to about laying up treasure in heaven, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul here is telling the Corinthians, verse 12, if any man builds upon the foundation, and the foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire." So what makes something wood, hay, and stubble? What makes something gold, silver, precious stones? Well, in the context here of 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, the issue is are we living a spiritual life or are we not? So can a Christian, and he's speaking to Christians, can a Christian live in such a way that something that they are doing, their life is not spiritual? And the answer is yes. And so he says... And for example, here in verse 1 of chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, or to carnal men, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are, not, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? The whole point here is that the very way that you became spiritual is by placing your faith in Christ. And at that point, the Spirit of God causes you to be born again. So each of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are spiritual in position, but we are not necessarily spiritually mature. Well, the very thing that caused us to be spiritual instead of fleshly, we are no longer fleshly, we are spiritual positionally, the very thing that transferred us from flesh to spirit was faith in Christ. And so the only thing that can, that can distinguish between flesh and spirit as a Christian is also faith in Christ. If it was faith in Christ that moved us from flesh to spirit, it is faith in Christ that distinguishes between flesh and spirit. It's the same thing. And so I like to tell the students at His Hill that Anything and everything can be spiritual, and anything and everything can be fleshly. It depends on where you are living from. And if you are living from Christ as you clean a table and mop a floor, then that activity is spiritual activity because you are doing it in dependence upon Christ. And you can preach a sermon. You can actually tell someone else about Jesus and bow your head with that person to receive Christ and it be fleshly behavior because you are doing it in your own strength. So the only distinction between gold, gold silver, and precious stones on the one hand and wood, hay, and stubble on the other is what originated with faith. And if it wasn't didn't have, have, if it did not have its origin and its foundation in dependence upon Christ, faith in Him, then it will be burned up because that activity was sourced in me, not Christ. And whatever is not from Christ will not endure. The works of God are what endure. The works of man will not endure no matter how noble they are, no matter how praiseworthy they are. If they do not have their origin in Christ, they will not endure. So if I'm going to lay up treasure in heaven, I must live a life of faith dependence upon Christ. And when I do, everything amounts for treasure. And see, this is why, again, we will never boast in heaven about the treasure that has been given to us, because the treasure is a consequence of what Christ did in response to faith. So he's going to get all the glory. All we did was trust him, and we get credited with what Christ did. 
That's grace. And you're not going to boast in grace. So we are responsible to lay up treasure in heaven. And very simply, that treasure is, happens when we place our faith in Christ, trust in him in all that we do. So back to Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is a lifelong thing. It is not a once and done transaction. All through our lives, because we live in this world of where we see and, and, and all of our senses are activated, it is so much easier to have our hearts gravitate toward what we can see and handle than it is toward the unseen, heaven itself. And so our hearts tend to go astray, and our hearts can get attached to things again. Those things are not bad in themselves, but our heart can go there, and the Lord in His grace and mercy to us occasionally has to just move our hearts back to where they're supposed to be. And that can be in so many ways. If I, I think about, you know, my heart, sometimes I just, get a, I, I just want things to work well because I can't fix things. And so it means a lot for me for things to work well. And the last thing I want to do is just, just I hate it when I break something, I, I wreck a car or something, because I'm just going, oh, my word. And so the Lord, once in a while, just lets those things happen just to kind of show you where your heart I put a new light on the outside of our garage um, all a couple years ago now. I was pretty proud of myself. I'm not an electrician uh, by any means, but I, I tackled the task, and the light works. Motion light, pull in, turns on, leave, turns off, works perfectly. But for some reason that I do not understand, the garage door stopped working. <laughs> I'm so frustrated by that. I mean, I didn't do anything to the garage door. I didn't touch the garage door. All I did was turn the power breaker off to the garage door so I could install the light on the outside of the garage. And that was the last day that the garage door worked. So now we lift the garage door by hand. And so a few weeks ago now, I lifted the garage door up, had no intention of taking the car out. I just lifted the garage door up to go in. And I didn't lift it all the way out. Up, that's okay, because I wasn't going to drive the car out. It wasn't 30 seconds later, I had to drive the car out. And I'd forgotten I hadn't lifted the car, the garage door all the way up. So you know what's coming. And so I heard this thunderous crash. And so I stopped and realized I didn't raise the garage door all the way. And those little shark antennas that sit on the back of the car just ripped it right off. Not completely off, but I destroyed it. And so I'm thinking, oh, my word, Lord. I was so upset. I told Patsy, I said, just shoot me. I'm just, but it was, it, it was, again, I just, I didn't know my heart was so tied up in just not wanting to mess up this car. And so the Lord had to show me, you're not going to take this car with you. And again, it is a treasure on earth, and that is not where my heart is to be. It got fixed, and it got fixed for less than probably it should have been fixed for. I ended up costing me 400 bucks. It probably would have been $1,000 if I'd taken it to the Toyota dealership. But anyway, I just, I'm thankful that it's done, but it was, again, just another strike at my heart as we, we all get these because our heart can so easily be caught up in these treasures, and we don't even know it until something happens to the treasure. I begged my parents one Christmas for um, leather rabbit-lined gloves. Understand, we grew up in Corpus Christi. <laughs> I didn't need leather rabbit-lined gloves. But my parents very sacrificially bought me those gloves. Oh, I love those gloves. I wore them one day, one day, and the next day, that evening before I went to bed, I could not find my gloves. And I can remember searching everywhere, and my mom, I was just so upset. And my mom said, well, let's pray about it. And I, what use is that? So I, we prayed. God, let me find my gloves tomorrow. I found my gloves the next day. I went out to feed the dog, and the dog had been chewing on my gloves all night. Dogs like leather rabbit-lined gloves. 
I was so upset. And my mom just laughed and said, well, you didn't ask God to let you find them in good shape. <laughs> but my treasure, my treasure was destroyed. It was a good lesson for me as a child. She once took my whole piggy bank and confiscated it because she found me scooping up money underneath my dad's dresser. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like that. What are you doing with that money? I said, it goes into my piggy bank. Where's your piggy bank? Oh, my. I knew exactly where it was, in the middle of my room on a pedestal with a light shining on it. <laughs> <laughs> and she confiscated my piggy bank. She took my treasure. That was a good thing. She never gave it back. I don't know what she did. It wasn't a lot of money, but you know, I never saw it again. But it was a good thing. God broke my heart because my treasure was where my heart was. This is an act of mercy and grace on God's part because it is such folly, such folly to let our hearts be fixed on the things of this earth. And ever so often, God in his grace and mercy to us has to break our heart because our heart is in the wrong place. Then he speaks of vision. In verse 22, and he says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now we have at least two um, ophthalmologists that go to church here. And so I really should have one of them come up here and talk about this because I am absolutely no expert on eyes. But it is very clear what he is saying is that the eye is very essential to the health of the body. I do read an occasional article that even says that you can have a good idea of the health of the body by looking at the eye. I saw an article recently that says you can predict that, that doctors are beginning to be able to predict whether or not there will be um, Alzheimer's by looking at the retina of people and how, how the retinas are aging. And so there's a lot that you can determine, apparently, by the health of the person by looking at the eye. Proverbs says that the eye is the window into the soul. And so where I have my heart is going to be reflected a bit with how I see. And we know there's different kinds of eye problems. There's cataracts. There's being short, um, near, nearsighted, all different kinds of glaucoma, tunnel vision, different things. And all of these things are problems, but the Lord is really getting at the fact that if my heart is on earthly treasure, I am not looking correctly at the things of this world. I need to look up and not be short-sighted, but have that far-sightedness where I see the things of heaven and not just the things of earth. Some translations don't translate this if your eye is clear, but if your eye is good or if your eye is healthy or if your eye is single. I saw one writer who said that the word here is the same as what's in James 1.5 where it says God gives wisdom generously. So that's not any of these words. It's not clear, good, healthy, single, but generously. It's interesting. I don't know if the word's exactly the same. I looked it up and it looked like it might be a little different. But taking that guy at his word, he's saying then that a, that a good heart, a healthy heart, or a healthy eye, a good eye, will be when you are generous. You're understanding that all that you have is not just for you, but God has given to you that you might give to others. I saw one writer who said we're supposed to be rivers of blessing, not reservoirs. And that when God does bless us and give to us, instead of hoarding it and trying to hang on to it, clutching to it, but asking God, how would you want me to bless others with the blessing that you've given to me? That's having a good eye, a clear eye, healthy eye. It's thinking rightly about what God has given. And then in verse 24, he moves from our treasure in our hearts to our vision and then to our master. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so the point is that with employers, you can have two employers. 
But with a master, you only have one master. And we don't like to, be, to think too critically of ourselves with this, and certainly no one else is to judge this. This is really between us and the Lord. But each of us knows, if we just take the time and allow God to speak to us on this, we know who our master is. And is it money, possessions, material things? It can even be family, children. Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? I have a friend that um, God has blessed him. And um, he's, he, I've always viewed him as being very generous. Um, but he told me once when I was visiting with him, he says, you know, Charlie, there was a while there where, where money had become my God. And he said, it isn't any longer. But it was, a, it was um, a, an awakening for him to have to do that critical assessment of his own heart. And he had to acknowledge that money was his master. And it had become an idol. And so that's a surgery that only God can accomplish to move us away from that. But it is, again, something that he would have us to do. And you don't have to be a rich person by any means. You can be dirt poor and have money be your master. But there's only going to be one master. It is either God or it is the things of this world. Each of us needs to be thinking on this. What are the dangers of not keeping our heart, our vision, um, our master where it should be? I came across one guy, and he says, these things happen. These are the dangers of not keeping our eye on the eternal, not having our our hearts where they ought to be. One is that we get a wrong definition of personal success. We get the wrong definition of personal success. If my master is money, then I'm going to say success is money. My idea could be a large family. And though we celebrate the dedicating of these precious babies, we don't want to think that having 10 children is more spiritual than having no children. That would be wrong. And that would, I think, indicate a problem with our vision. Our vision is to be Jesus Christ. And we, our heart is to be captivated with him. And if you have one child, no child, or have 10 or 12 children, that should not ever be the standard of spirituality. We can get a wrong estimate of other people's worth or lack thereof. If I'm thinking the most important thing is to have a big family, then I might think that other people are not as spiritual as me. If I think the most important thing is having money, then I might think other people are not as valuable because they don't have as much money. I know missionaries struggle with this quite a bit, and sometimes pastors. But missionaries, um, typically, not always, but typically they don't have a lot of money. And, um, and when they come back and do their deputation and their fundraising, they absolutely hate it. It's the last thing on earth they'd want to do. And it's, it can be very difficult because they don't have the clothing that's up to style. They haven't had stylish clothing for many years, decades maybe. And it's tough to come back and to ask for money and to know that people are looking down on you some because you're in that position. We get the wrong estimate of other people when our eye is on the wrong thing. We can wrongly motivate our children on what is important in life. Because if we're not living true to what is truly important, our children are going to catch that. Whether we openly tell them or not, they're going to catch it. We can tell them Jesus is the most important thing, but if they don't see Jesus being the most important thing in our life, they will catch what we are living from. Absolutely. I appreciated my, my dad um, all my life. I've seen my dad involved in ministry. Um, and I, it, he obviously didn't have to. He's not a minister per se. But all my life, I've seen him involved one way or another in, in ministry, whether it was teaching a Sunday school class or holding a good news club at a, at a housing project on a Sunday afternoon. Um, always been involved. And that has showed me that he says this is important, that you take a Sunday afternoon and go to a housing project and conduct a good news club as a grown man, as a businessman, that says something. Tells you where your treasure is, where your heart is, where your vision is. And so small wonder that we all grew up 
um, ourselves just really valuing being involved in ministry. If our dangers, there's a danger of not keeping our eye on the eternal, we have the wrong idea of what God's will is for our lives. If my heart is on the things that are temporal, I can begin to say, well, obviously this is God's, not my, God's will for me. Obviously God wants me to make all the money I can make. Or obviously God would not have me take a lower paying job for a higher paying job. Or obviously God would want us to have, you know, as many kids as we can possibly have. Not so obvious. Maybe all those things are true. Maybe the Lord would have you make all the money you can make. Maybe the Lord would have you have all the babies you can possibly have. But we need to make sure that it is truly God's will and not just our personal ambition. We will also lose the significance and value of the Bible and God's people when our vision is not clear. Paul moves on, sorry Paul, so used to teaching the epistles. Jesus moves on in verse 25 and he talks about just a seamless transition over and he talks about not being anxious, which is obviously what should follow. He's just said, don't store up things on earth. Well, that's going to cause anxiety. Let your treasure be in heaven. Oh Lord, how do I live? Glad you brought it up. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. So this is the second do not. The first one, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. The second, do not be anxious for your life. Now you may not know this, but I have a PhD in anxiety. Um, I know, that was one, I think, you know, would have been one of my first words that I would have wanted to know how to spell is worry. Um, I know all about worrying and anxiety. And I, um, I probably got that from my mother. Um, she worried and was and anxious most of her life. And so I came by it on, you know, honestly. Um, it's not a good thing. And I really, as I read this passage here, it, I, I just was, um, as I thought about it, I was just amazed at really how gentle Jesus is with a very, very serious problem. So you really look at it, the heart of worry and anxiety is unbelief. And we know Jesus does not look favorably on unbelief. And more than that, it is slanderous. In fact, some would say blasphemous to be filled with worry and anxiety. We're saying that God will not take care of us. Remember, we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. And one of God's names is provider. And another name is protector. And those are the two reasons we worry the most. We will not be provided for. We will not be protected. And we can be so filled with anxiety, worry, and fear. And you think about that, that it really comes down to taking God's name in vain. And then it's amazing that Jesus is so gentle in dealing with this. He knows us. One person said that there are over 350 times in the Bible we are told, don't be afraid. In one way or another, don't be afraid. And isn't that what anxiety has motivating it? Fear, fear, don't be afraid. Do, you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what your, or your, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? So he talks about food and drink and clothing. That's the minimalist part. But we know God is concerned with all the rest as well. We see in, the, in 2 Kings, Elisha is working with the prophets and they're building a dwelling for the prophets and, and the axe head that a man was using came off the handle and flew out into the river and he's just moaning over it like I moan when I do something dumb. And, and he goes, oh, Elisha, I've lost the axe, axe head and it was borrowed. Well, so what? God doesn't care. And Elisha said, where did it go in the water? He takes a stick, throws it in the water, and the axe head floats to the surface. God cares even about tools that we borrow. He cares about every aspect of our being. 
I brought our oldest son, Nathan, home from Boy Scouts one night. He was about 12 years old. He's always been quiet, and we pulled into the driveway, and he was a little more quiet than normal. And I had the good sense, the perceptiveness at that moment to realize something might be the matter. And so I said, Nathan, is something bothering you? At 12 years old, he said, Dad, I just don't know how I'm going to pay for college. <laughs> I went, oh, my, I am so sorry I've done this to you. You know, and I, I'm sorry. I inherited it from my mom. You've inherited it from me. And I, and, I, and I said, Nathan, I don't know either. But God knows. And it was just a, a statement of just pure faith. It may have sounded like a platitude to him. I don't know. But I said, Nathan, if God wants you to go to college, then God will provide for this. And he did. And not only Nathan, but for Michael and Ryan, they all three went to college. And, and I can tell you, this church was a major part in helping with those boys going to college. And I would have had, I had no idea. There was no plan. There was no financial planner that could have helped me figure out how to get three boys through college. But God wanted them to do that. And God did take care of it. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So this is an issue of, of perspective now, of recognizing that we have greater worth than the birds do. And it's not to say no bird ever starves or no bird ever dies. They do. But God, if that's happening, it must be because this is what God wants. I say that with some reservation because we know there's evil in this world and God is not the author of evil, and yet God can let evil befall his children. Satan wanted to strike at Job, and God said no. And then God said yes. And he let him take all of his camels, all of his sheep, all of his ox, all of his, all of his servants, and all of his children. And in one day, they all died. It was from Satan. God permitted it, but Satan did it. I can't tell you when things happen is, is it Satan? Is it God? Sometimes it's both. But I do know that God has promised to work all together for good. And I know this earth is not our home. And there are no guarantees that we're going to go through life and not suffer great loss. My grandmother had 12 children. The middle six all died before they reached their teenage years. That's pretty tragic. And she was a woman that was not bitter. And that's pretty miraculous. Still grieved. She lived to be 100. And even at 100 years old, you'd mention one son in particular stepped off the school bus, first day off the school bus, as I recall, at least his first week. She was right across the road to receive him. And he ran across the road, and a car struck him down. Very talented boy. And um, even at 100 years old, she would still cry thinking of that child, but not a trace of bitterness in her heart. We are worth much more than the sparrows, and God has promised to take care of us. But that doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to us. We have a plaque on our kitchen wall. I've quoted it before. I quoted it many times to our children. One of Patsy's aunts hand-painted it and gave it to us, and, and I love it. I need to read it every day. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about to and fro. Said the sparrow to the robin, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. See, anxiety and worry and fretting are testimonies that we have no one to care for us. And that is a lie. Isn't it amazing Jesus is so gentle with this? He doesn't say, you're believing a lie. 
You're blaspheming the name of God. You're taking God's name in vain. He could have said all that. But he's just saying, Aren't, don't you realize you are of more value than anything else God has made? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? We cannot add to the length of our lives. We have a facility next door to us at His Hill that the ambition for many years has been to make it the, the leading chirogenics facility in all the world so that rich people who are worried about dying can go there, live in their condominium, die on the property, and then get them immediately into liquid nitrogen in the hope of bringing them back to life one day. Now that <laughs> is being anxious about trying to add a cubit to your life's span. It's not ever going to happen. Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. You remember all the time we spent, I know even as a boy, the time I spent in junior high school and high school wanting to look right. Oh my, I wish I had all that time back. To have the jeans the right length, the hair the right way, to have everything fit just exactly the way it's supposed to fit, and I'm a boy. <laughs> I was so much worse for the girls. Unbelievable. And he's going, really? It's just that's the world we get caught up in. And he's going, really? He goes, Solomon was never clothed with all of his expensive garments, and nobody was clothed like Solomon was. He says, Solomon was not clothed as the lilies of the field are clothed. God is going to take care of us. It may not be what we want. It may not be fit perfectly or be as stylish as we want, but it is God's provision. And maybe we need the less than to keep us with our eyes on the Lord and not fixated on the things of this world. Verse 30, but even if, if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he care for you, O men of little faith? Wow. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. In, in, in other words, the unbelievers. You're not unbelievers. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You realize how many times we've been supplied for and we've never asked God to supply? Most, most of the time. We have, we're thanking Him after He has supplied and we didn't ask Him to supply. But ever so often, we're in a position where we have to ask before the supply comes. For most of us, that is the exception. We don't live day to day, hand to mouth. And so we are thanking him after the fact and not asking him before. There's a true story of the missionary surgeon, Helen Rosevere, who ministered in the British Congo. And a preemie baby came into the clinic. And the only way to keep this baby alive, and he had only hours to live, was to get heat next to the baby's body. And this is in, the, in, in Africa, the Congo, where it's incredibly humid. They had to have a hot water bottle lying next to this baby in order to keep this preemie baby alive. And so she made the request known to her little girls that, that she taught a little um, girls class with and said, girls, we have to pray for this bottle, water bottle. They needed it the next day. What are the chances in the middle of Africa, the next day, a hot water bottle are showing up? And this little girl in great faith, she says, God, we thank you for the water bottle that will be arriving tomorrow. And she says, and God, while you're at it, I ask that you give me a little dolly to play with as well. 
for the, the next day, this is an absolutely true story, it's been verified over and over, this lady received the first care package she had ever received since being a missionary, the next day. And they opened it up, and right on the top was a hot water bottle. And that little baby lived. And the little girl that had prayed for the dolly, she says, open up the rest of it. And so sure enough, at the bottom of the box was a little dolly for the girl who had said, in such faith prayed. But as a child who knew, we have a Father in heaven who cares for us. Verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So when we make him the first thing we seek, then the anxiety is dispelled. The greatest anecdote to worry and anxiety is to put our eyes back on Jesus. It's not ultimately anything else. It's not counseling. It's not meditation. It's it's. It's valuable and as, as those can, things can be and as much as God may use them. It is simply coming back to the Lord and recognizing we have a Father in heaven who is absolutely committed to us. Psalm 4, 6, and 7. We all know it. It's not Psalm. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the anecdote to this gripping anxiety that paralyzes us. We come to God with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, making our requests known to Him, and the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. If you haven't picked up on it, I hope you recognize that all that Jesus is saying here is for the believer. If you do not yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you know that, then I can't talk to you about knowing the peace of God. I can't talk to you about being free of anxiety and worry that is just crippling because you don't have peace with God first. That's the first step. Before you can know the peace of God, you have to have peace with God. You need to become His child. You need to know that He is truly your heavenly Father, and He is absolutely committed to you. Well, that's never happened before. See, how many things break when I'm around? <laughs> we'll just lay that down. I think you can still hear me. And then for us, we are His, we are his children. What are we seeking? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. We're all seekers. What are we seeking? His kingdom, his righteousness. Seek that first. These are some strong statements that Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, for the gospel's sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In Luke 14, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a pretty harsh statement, but Jesus is saying, I have to be your first love. And then he concludes these thoughts saying, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Again, he's not telling us to all go out and sell everything we have. But our heart should be free. Our heart should be free. No one is more concerned about our hearts and their attachments than the Lord is because it is for liberty that he has saved us.
He saved us that we might be free. Free from the anxiety and the concern of, of losing what we have or the need to get more. We haven't been saved to be controlled by the master of these things. But we've been saved to be controlled by him and to come into the liberty and the freedom of knowing we have a God. And he is absolutely committed to each one of us. Paul wrote and said, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And then he said in Philippians 4, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Learn the secret of going hungry, going hungry, and also of having abundance. I've never gone hungry. There was a time I ate peanut butter and jelly every day for a long time, and I haven't eaten it since. Um, but I've never gone hungry. I dare say most of us have never gone hungry. God has met our needs richly. Do we know the secret of being content? He also wrote and said, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's not the root of evil, but a root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That is seeking first his kingdom. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And made the good confession the presence of many witnesses. We have to fight the fight of faith. We find our hearts being clutched by worry and anxiety by the things of this world. Fight the fight of faith, Paul's saying. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Amen. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Twice when I was in Bible college, I didn't have my paper done for the next day. I was a diligent student. I worked hard. The school was extraordinarily demanding at that time, and... Um, Lots of work. We were on a quarter system. Basically, they're packing a semester's work of work into every quarter. Don't you feel sorry for me? Um, and I remember sitting at my desk my first year in college, and, um, and I would start laughing uncontrollably and then start crying uncontrollably. That's never a good sign. And I was still sane enough to realize I'm on the edge here. This is not a good place to be. And the reason was is because I was so anxious, anxious about not getting the work done. I don't know why I thought I couldn't be a C student. Um, it's like George Bush when he spoke to the Harvard graduates one year. He said, those of you that are graduating as A and B students, you will go on to be Supreme Court justices and you'll be doctors and all these things. Those of you that are graduating as C students, you may become president of the United States. <laughs> But I was quite anxious to the point I was destroying my health and my mind, which anxiety can do. And I remember telling God, I said, God, what am I supposed to do? I, there's just not enough hours in the day. And I was getting about six hours of sleep at night. And I can't function on that. And I said, but there's papers that I have to be due as well. And, I just, and, and God said, go to sleep and trust me. So I did. And I wasn't sleeping 10 hours. I was sleeping, I think, seven and taking a 15-hour, 15-15-hour, 15-minute nap in the afternoon. And I walked into class one day, and I am just eaten up with worry and anxiety because this major paper is not done. And I thought it's over. And the professor walks in, 
pauses and says, I don't know why I'm doing this. I have never done this in the entire time I've taught. But I'm, nobody's asked me to, but I'm giving you all an extension on this paper. And I sit there, my eyes are watering up, my lips are quivering, and I know exactly why. Because the Lord's trying to teach me that each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. It happened twice to me. We have a Father in heaven who is absolutely committed to you and me. He is so gently saying to us, stop the worry. It makes no sense. When God in heaven is committed to our welfare, focus on eternity. Focus on the Father's care. Recognize that your value is greater than anything else that God has ever made. And pursue God's promises and focus on God's grace for today. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Focus on God's grace that he supplies for today. I'll close us in prayer. You are so good to us, God. And this is a passage, Lord, where you could have just dropped the hammer on us and just told us, how ungodly, how blasphemous it is to worry and fret. But you didn't. Thank you, God, for your gentleness toward us. Thank you that you understand, God, what concerns us. And that some of us, Lord, just live in a place of where there just seems to be bigger holes in the net every year. And we just more and more just falling through and so little, Lord, to live from. And yet, God, you have promised to care for us. I pray, Lord, that we would have our eyes fixed on the things above, that we would be looking on Jesus, living in this short life that you've given us, God, with eternity in mind, living from Christ as well as for Christ, and that our hearts would be ruled by the peace of God as we come to you in everything with thanksgiving, God. This is the promise you've given to us, and as our eyes turn to you, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you will overcome the anxiety with your peace. And I thank you, God, for your loving care for us this day. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you will be faithful and true and that you will remain absolutely committed to all that concerns us. In Jesus' name, amen.